in a world where every diet you know is wrong. Well, not every diet. I mean... Yes, but almost every doesn't sound as good. Yeah, but... Shut up. One man stands alone. Well, not completely. I mean... It's time for Adam Martin, the No Breakfast Guy. And let's talk fast. Fasting, fitness, and fat loss. What's going on guys and welcome to a brand new episode of the Let's Talk Fast podcast. I'm your host Adam Martin, more commonly known as the No Breakfast Guy and I hope you're doing what you love with the people that you love and let's just jump straight into it. So if you've listened to my podcast or seen my Instagram over the last 12 months, you will have heard me mention this particular man's name a few times and kind of get him onto my podcast. I am incredibly happy that we were able to get our schedules aligned and here today we are chatting with the one and only Alan Aragon. So thank you so much for jumping onto the show, Matt. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. It is a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, I think um, you know, I mean, I think it's always good timing if we can have someone with uh, your kind of mind and skill with regards to the current research and evidence-based uh, literature that's out there. Um, but I think it's going to be really um, good timing for you to be here today because over the last week, I've posted two different posts that blew up and I had a lot of uh, anger coming towards me from the two different uh, areas uh, that I was talking about. One being uh, the carb-hating fraternity and one being the vegan fraternity. And so um, I just, as I said, love to have you on and let's talk more about those <laughs> and kind of try and take the emotion that I guess a lot of it comes from. And I, I understand where that emotion comes from. I'm not certainly uh, just putting it to the side, but I want to just be more open-minded to it, and I'd love to have uh, your input on some of those uh, chats that I've had um, with my Instagram following, but to kind of uh, have your input from that. So yeah, as I said, I really, really appreciate your time today and jumping on. Cool, man. Cool. Let's let's get into it. Um, can you just give a bit of background for anyone who might not know you, just kind of, I guess, who you are and I guess where your origin story kind of comes from and I guess what you've done in the industry and kind of where that leads you today to kind of what you do? Okay. Well, I am, I guess, title-wise, and I've given this so much thought, yet it still doesn't roll off the tongue very well. I'm a nutrition educator and researcher. And uh, when I talk to people in person about who I am and what I do, it makes a lot more sense to them when I tell them that I am a footnote or a citation at the bottom of your term papers in college. <laughs> so that's what I am. <laughs> I've been in the industry, active in the industry for the last 27 years. I've been uh, full-time in research and uh, education um, for the last mm, almost 10-ish, but uh, I was in the trenches as a personal trainer for a solid decade before I transitioned into going into counseling for another decade where I mixed personal training with nutritional counseling and then the last five, six years I've been full-time in research. So uh, a lot of uh, a lot of different avenues that uh, I've uh, treaded in the industry. And if so, I mean, do you know, do you even look at these numbers, um, but do you know how many times, I guess, you and some of the stuff that you've done or research you've done has been cited on people's papers when you say that you are that footnote? Kind of, <laughs> have you seen what those uh, numbers are? Uh, once in a while, I'll check it out. Um, I do have a ResearchGate account, which I, I never open up ResearchGate because uh, between Instagram and, and, and now Twitter, uh, and everything else, <laughs> it's just <laughs> I'm finding no time to open up all of the all of these platforms that that I, I'm signed up for. But um, probably the research I'm most well known for is the research on nutrient timing as it relates to muscle hypertrophy, and I have to credit Brad Schoenfeld, uh, or actually Saint Bradley Schoenfeld. <laughs> for pulling me in on these research product, uh, pro projects that pertain to protein timing relative to the resistance training bout, how it affects body composition and strength. And, and so when people talk about the anabolic window concept or the post-exercise anabolic window concept, the guys who first brought that idea uh, to light or at least to the masses and, and also to the research community 
were John Ivey and Robert Portman back in the early 2000s with their nutrient timing book. And then uh, St. Brad and I ended up re-examining the, the research in that area and then challenging it and then um, running our own research on it and kind of updating the whole concept of the post-exercise anabolic window and finding out that it's more like a peri-exercise garage door or barn door <laughs> rather than this tiny post-exercise anabolic window. So it, it's been a fun research journey. And while I'm on the topic of St. Brad, uh, as we speak, we have a, a paper, not, not an actual original investigation, but a review paper uh, that we wrote on gaining muscle and caloric surplus with the, and it's, it's going to be published soon enough. And I'm excited to be able to announce that when it does. Amazing. Well, I mean, just on, on that particular topic of, you know, the anabolic window and I mm -hmm. guess most of my audience that listen in here, um, mostly a female, um, and mostly, um, I'm trying to get, um, and pushing across the idea of strength training and kind of being able to, um, maximize the benefits for the long-term effect it'll be on, you know, when you're 80 years of age and you're still able to sit, sit up and down out of bed or get out off the toilet and things like that, you know, not necessarily kind of its effect right here and right now. But I certainly remember back in 2000 when I was in uni and doing some of those um, courses, not courses, but modules and things that we we're going through and hearing that anabolic window of, you know, if you're not getting something in within the next 15 minutes, then your entire workout was an absolute <laughs> waste of time. Then don't even bother kind of thing. Um, where right. is the kind of current research at then? Like you say it's more of a, a garage door kind of what, mm -hmm. what have you found and kind of what's mostly being said about that? Okay. So the way that we can frame this is, is that nutrient timing and in particular the timing of your protein doses, because Carbohydrate dosing mainly is relevant to endurance exercise goals. So if we're talking about changing body composition uh, and or gaining muscle specifically or losing fat, then th that's a whole different set of, of goals and objectives and, and programming concerns. So if we're indeed talking about just getting in better shape, improving body composition, then Timing of nutrients in general really is just as simple as making sure that within 24-hour blocks, you're getting in what you need. Um, there's really no meaningful impact of shifting individual meals uh, an hour here, 30 minutes there, um, in order to try to micromanage and, and optimize training adaptations. It's just doesn't work that way. So instead of thinking of a very narrow post-exercise anabolic window, uh, as far as body composition is concerned, the body sees basically these 24-hour windows <laughs> where you either get in what you need during those 24-hour windows or you miss it. So, um, and, and it is different, if I may complicate things just a little bit here, the goal of maximizing muscle gain it should be distinguished from other goals, especially the goal of either maintaining or, or um, losing uh, body weight okay, or body fat. So if we look at the goal of gaining muscle, then there are some at least soundly theoretical concerns towards getting, of course, enough total daily protein, but uh, maintaining a certain minimum distribution of protein doses through the day. So if somebody's goal was to maximize muscle gain, it's not that goal is not likely going to happen if they only have one to two protein feedings in the day. Now, can muscle gain happen under those conditions with like one or two meals a day? Yes, it can. It, it can. However, for the specific goal of maximizing the rates of muscle gain. It's not likely to happen unless you have a minimum of three to four protein doses per day with each dose uh, hitting that kind of theoretical minimum for maximizing muscle protein synthesis per dose. So, Yeah, we, I, I actually had Andy, uh, Andy Morgan on the show um, last year and I think 
Um, it was actually his podcast a couple of years ago that I think I re- remember first hearing you talk on his podcast. And I think that's how I came across you and then kind of went down your rabbit hole of kind of who you are and kind of where I came across you. But we were talking about um, kind of, and I've kind of titled it in the past, but he had this kind of pyramid of kind of importance and I call it the the sh- you know scale of shit that matters kind of thing and mm-hmm. you know, playing the majors, not the minors, rather, you know, doing the things that are going to have a massive impact on your life and well-being and health and all those and keeping away from the things until the very pointy end if you, as you said, you're an Olympic athlete or trying to absolutely maximise every single bit of gain or thing that you're trying to get out of it that only gives you a 1% kind of return. And so, I mean, I, I take from this and I hope the audience get like, is nutrient timing that kind of minor league stuff as in it's the 1% differences that, you know, if you are trying to maximise everything, that's where you should put your uh, emphasis. Otherwise, just kind of keep it to the broad spectrum of just get it in at some point during the day absolutely no doubt about it it's like the way i i look at the whole nutrient timing thing is if you picture this huge birthday cake um the total daily calories and nutrient intake for, for the day is the cake and the timing of those things is the it's a thin layer of icing on the cake you know, and it, this is really the case, and and I'm glad it's that way because then there's a lot of room for individualizing programs to the preferences and the tolerances and the schedules of uh, of individuals. So people shouldn't look at it as this negative thing that there's such a wide margin of flexibility and and how you can achieve your goals. They should look at it as a positive thing because everybody differs in terms of their preferences. And so for general Susie who's sitting at, home, sitting at home listening to this now saying, you know, I really want to try and start making a difference in my body composition and, um, you know, what what would you suggest is kind of how much protein should she get in and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, with regards to eating windows and things like that, should she worry about them at all or just steer, steer clear of that at, um, completely? That's a good question. Uh, I think that people should know in at the very beginning that the process of losing weight or more specifically, losing body fat, uh, that's going to require a net caloric deficit by the end of a period of time. And so that period of time that you want to net the deficit, it doesn't have to be hour by hour or, you know, uh, obviously not minute by minute. I mean, you can look at achieving a net caloric deficit by the end of the day or by the end of the week. So if you're somebody who has days in the week where you tend to eat more or you have the opportunity to eat more. Not every day, not every 24-hour period has to be a net caloric deficit where you're eating less calories than you burn for the day. As long as that happens by the end of the week and you string together a set of weeks, then, then you're going to succeed. So given that framework, uh, it is important for people to achieve at least a minimal amount of protein that will maintain lean body mass. And per all of the research that we've done, uh, collectively, uh, the general population, the non-athletic population, would want to look at somewhere between achieving at least 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. And the more athletic population would want to look at somewhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilo of body weight. So with that upper bracket, looking a bit more at the uh, at the folks more oriented toward fitness, fitness goals, you're looking at uh, about 0.7 to one gram of protein per pound of body weight that you would want to maintain in order to just maximize the retention and or gain of muscle tissue while you are losing body fat. If, again, we talk about um, Susie sitting at home and she's you know, 180 kilos and morbidly mm. obese and really you know, obviously wanting to get started, she he mm. probably hears that and goes, okay, I'll do my maths in my head and get the, you know, mm-hmm. oh my God, how am I going to get over 200 grams of protein in per day with the caloric amount that I'm going to maybe be allowed to have? Is there kind yeah. of room to wiggle on that to go, okay, well, there are certain circumstances where 
maybe the morbidly obese, we adjust that for a time being until a weight is that we can move that up? Or like, where would you suggest for someone that is sitting in that kind of situation? Sure. At the kind of at the extreme ends here of people who are very overweight or very underweight, um, but more about what, what you mentioned, the cases that we're, we're looking at with people being very overweight or obese, uh, it might be more appropriate for them to set protein targets on their goal body weight or their target body weight. So um, if somebody is, let's just throw some um, some easy numbers around, if somebody weighs 200 pounds and they're 50% body fat uh, and they're trying to hit, you know, um, well, let's say 150 pounds, okay? It, it's more appropriate for that person to do a, to set their, their protein target on target body weight rather than current body weight because protein, the, the, the purpose of you optimizing protein is not to attempt to feed fat tissue, but rather feed muscle tissue. So if somebody is obese or morbidly obese, it can make more sense for this person uh, to set their protein target on goal body weight. So a an easy kind of default, although admittedly high amount, is a gram of protein per pound of goal body weight. But there is some wiggle room there. You can go 0.7 to a full 1.0 grams of protein per pound of target body weight. And then that would put those that population in, in the right place for protein intake. Um, and when we're saying that kind of protein intake, is that now more so basically maintaining their kind of muscle that they already have? Or will that potentially in someone who might be very undertrained and has never been in a gym before and never done strength training, could that be enough to elicit some sort of muscle gain or not really? It, it definitely can. It definitely can. And the, and the way that I can say that with confidence is, uh, we've seen that numerous times across numerous studies where protein, um, it's not necessarily optimized, but uh, because of the person's training status, they're able to experience the whole, in quotes, recomp or a recomposition phenomenon where they are actually gaining muscle and losing body fat at the same time. And recomp, it happens to a, a diminishing degree. As somebody goes from beginner slash novice, straight off the couch status, all the way to super athlete, you know, recomp becomes much more of a pipe dream as you move along yeah. in your training age <laughs> yeah. or training status. But yeah, it, it can happen in beginners. It happens in inter intermediates. Uh, happening in, recomposition happening in advanced trainees is it's not a very practical goal to pursue. The advanced uh, athletes are much better off focusing on one goal at a time. Yeah, and I mean, I, I do that mostly with a lot of my clients as well, is that um, unless they are coming from that extreme end of no activity at all, um, people sit there and go, Adam, I need to lose this much and I want to gain this much, kind of at the same. I was like, let's pick one goal and let's really focus heavily on that and kind of disregard other aspects for a little while. And then, as you said, just kind of moving through different phases. And um, I guess that's when people understand, well, why would I hire you as a coach? Well, I will help you along the you know kind of thing. So rather than just giving a basic, here's your numbers and just go and do that, um, people then can understand that, as you said, there's different phases that you can kind of move through to kind of you know attenuate a certain particular goal that you might be going towards. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. Agreed. Um, you mentioned in amongst that chat that we just had then um, about caloric deficit, or as I would say, calorie deficit. I love our different uh, accents here, but um, <laughs> but. Uh, this is obviously the point where I kind of came to the other day and I've said numerous times and it's the fight that everyone has amongst the keto brigade and everyone that's out there that you no know, carbs are what cause uh, weight gain. It's the insulin um, hypotheses and things like this. And this is where I really wanted to kind of pick your brain and kind of bring you mm -hmm. to the table because I think it's one of those things that gets, you know, it's very, very common amongst people in that kind of fear around carbs be that good carbs from, you know, I'd say good carbs within quotes here, you know, from fruits and vegetables and things like that, or from highly processed carbs from Twinkies and donuts. But let's just kind of, as I said, love to get your two cents on. Let's just try and clear up some confusion. Let's kind of help people, I guess, and find some value from this podcast in that they want to lose weight. What should they be focusing on? Where is, you know, where is the current research suggesting with regards to 
carbs, insulin, and things like that. And um, as I said, I'd love to just uh, open up your brain and let you just go free for all and kind of uh, say what you want to say. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. This is a big mess. This whole carbophobia thing is a big mess. And, and that mess has been exacerbated by people who write books that become bestsellers. And unfortunately, the books are filled with um, misinformation that's seated alongside good information. And people don't know the difference. Neither do the authors. And uh, then every, everybody ends up confused. And depending on who's most charismatic or who has the best delivery on TV or, or in social media, that's who the people believe. And um, not everybody uh, actually has an understanding of, of the evidence. And so that's why there's a big mess. It's because there is so many mixed messages put out in the various media outlets of which diets work best. So a concept that's very tough for um, just we as a species to, to wrap our heads around is that it's possible for many, many different shades of, of, of gray to be effective in this black-white spectrum of high-carb, low-fat and low-carb, high-fat. But the one thing that unifies them uh, would be to make sure that you are looking at the same amount of protein and calories total in total when you're comparing these diets. So one of the reasons for the popularity of low carb, high fat is if you were to just tell somebody, these are the foods you need to avoid, you know, avoid carbs period and just eat protein and fat go. Well, what happens is two things. Number one, uh, they eat more protein <laughs> than they used to. And this is a very common thing. And, and when you eat more protein, you are increasing the macronutrient that has the greatest impact on preserving lean body mass, muscle tissue. And you're also increasing satiety more than you would with any other macronutrient. And satiety being um, your, your, your decrease in hunger or your control of appetite. And um, uh, another wrinkle added to a diet that's higher in protein than a diet that's lower in protein is, is protein is more expensive to process within the body. So it, it, it costs more calorically, energetically. So you, you actually burn more calories to, in order to process protein than you do for any of the other macronutrients. <clears throat> so when you increase protein in the diet, you automatically make the diet more in quotes thermogenic. So, here we are, you've, you've, you've assigned somebody to cut out all carbs and just eat protein and fat, and you by default have increased their satiety levels and you've increased the amount of calories out in the equation. So, okay, great. You're on your, your carb-free diet and good luck, off you go. The problem with that in terms of a programming perspective is Yes, it works, and yes, it works for a lot of people, but the big question is how long is it going to work for? How sustainable is it? And for a lot of people, it isn't sustainable. And so we have to default back to, okay, well, what is sustainable? And then this differs across individuals. So if we were to take um, the spectrum of low-carb, high-fat, high-carb, low-fat, and let's equate protein, okay? Same amount of protein, same amount of total calories, and have the person choose what they prefer, wherever on the spectrum it might be. Then what we've achieved now is sustainability, adherence to the diet. And guess what? When we compare diets that are isocaloric and protein matched, and we force those, those variables to stay the same over a period of weeks, there's no difference in body fat loss between those two conditions. And that is the key thing that a lot of low-carb proponents, uh, especially in the social media space, is that all of the studies that show superior body fat loss of low-carb condition versus the high-carb, low-fat condition, they don't rigorously control the total amount of calories and the total amount of protein that each of the groups is eating. And this is, this is another 
thing that works um, in the favor of, let's say, the ketogenic diet, right? Um, ketogenic dieting appears to lower hunger. It appears to suppress hunger better than um, low-fat dieting. But I have to default once again to the problem. How long can you sustain that? Uh, there was a, a interesting study, very landmark study, uh, done by Gardner and colleagues. It's called the Diet Fits Study. It's a 12-month-long study where they they compared low low fat, uh, high carb with um, low carb, high fat, and they equated calories, equated protein, and then just had the two groups of subjects try to sustain this stuff for a year. Uh, both groups kind of regressed towards the mean. So the, the keto group just progressively inched their way out of keto by the end of the year. And the low-fat, high-carb group pro progressively uh, inched their way out of pritikinness <laughs> towards <laughs> as, as the diet progressed, as the year progressed. Uh, and ultimately, there were no differences in, in body weight uh, or body composition. And it, it all kind of circles right on back to, all right, once we've properly programmed total calories and protein, let's see what you prefer and can stick to. So that brings me to the other rabbit hole, which is the pointing at insulin as some sort of uh, agent to focus on when we're looking at body fat loss. Well, you're frankly just looking at the wrong damn thing because there have been multiple studies that are rigorously controlled with respect to total calories and protein, um, but with just variations in carbohydrate and fat proportion. And regardless of insulin flux, insulin output, uh, regardless of that, we don't see any differences in body fat reduction um, over time. So we can hypothesize all we want about insulin this or choose any hormone you want, but when protein and calories are matched, um, over time you run the experiments, we find that, oh, well, darn, we're all wrong about just trying to blame insulin. It does come down to energy balance, um, and, and, and that energy balance is really hinged upon which whichever diet you can either stick to or in the case of uh, ketogenic diets, they tend to spontaneously cause a lower net intake of calories because of of their greater suppression of hunger at least in the short term and our, our people out there then that kind of are big proponents of this and will go against what you have just kind of said and i guess against what a lot of the literature and research out there says i'd love to just get your point of view on whether you want to um, say it or not but do you honestly believe or do you believe they honestly believe what they're saying or they have no idea what they're talking about and just kind of fluffing it along the way or a bit of both? Like, do, they seem very obviously convincing and they're very like they'll pull research from here. Like, are they doing it purely just to try and sell an end product or do you, do you think that they absolutely believe what they're talking about and they're just, that's in their mind, they are right? Um, I think that it runs the gamut, Adam. I think that there are plenty of people who sincerely believe what and also are familiar with the body of evidence all the way to the other end of the spectrum where people don't know what the hell they're talking about and they are completely unfamiliar with the evidence. And so there's the full range of permutations across that continuum. Um, what's really frustrating, obviously, is when you do present evidence to folks um, but they are more religiously wedded to their beliefs. So even when you, when you do present the evidence to them, it's almost like arguing with somebody about religion <laughs> or politics. Yeah. And, I, <laughs> and so I was going to say, know, I've, the spirit I've, of, sorry, mate, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I'm just saying that <laughs> sometimes they're just, there's just no getting across to, to somebody's belief system. And, and, and you have to step back and say, okay, well, well, good luck with that. And uh, what ultimately matters for practitioners is whether or not they can help their clients in the long term. And so 
when you observe enough practitioners and how they treat clients um, with respect to programming, you'll find that the most experienced practitioners will deal in a range of different approaches, a range of different dietary paradigms that fit the individual. Because once you get protein and calories straight, they're technically, if the diet is adhered to, there's technically not going to be any difference in body fat loss between high carb, low fat versus um, high fat, low carb. Yeah, and I mean, what I was kind of uh, going to say is that obviously I'm the self-proclaimed um, no breakfast guy and I wrote a book on fasting and the great breakfast myth and things like that. But um, I've always uh, said that I have found it to be a very useful tool and find it a useful tool for many of my clients to use as a way to reduce calories and to um, find themselves in a caloric deficit. But I've also said that if tomorrow some sort of research came out that said that skipping that morning meal is very detrimental to your health, I would very quickly tomorrow shut down my Instagram page. I'm not wedded to this idea that it's the only way that you can go forward. I absolutely understand that you can do it in many different ways and I'm open to that and I'm tolerant of other people's wants to kind of choose other things. And I just I just couldn't wrap my head around kind of to go on a tangent there for Yesterday, when I posted my um, my post that said, you know, vegans, meat isn't harmful to your health, and people just barrage of just, you know, hate and, you know, I said this is not a moral discussion, this is not an ethical discussion. If you have, mm. you know, issues with that, all power to you, I'm not saying that, but this is a health factor I'm talking about, but people just coming in, and me trying to be open-minded and say, well, where's this person come from? Where's that hate coming from? Where are they... You know, I'm trying to put myself in their foot, but I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't get across to them in any way. And to your point, and it's nutrition's almost become the new religion in that just people are just so set in their beliefs and they're there that there's no possibility of any other way about doing it. And if you are against me, then you're my enemy, kind of thing, and you're the devil, you know, kind of thing. And I just, mm-hmm. I just wish we could be all more tolerant. And I know that's just my, <laughs> but um, but yeah, yeah, it is we're just as a species we're very tribal uh one of the basic human psychological needs is is a feeling of uh belonging within within a social structure uh within a community and uh people will just carry the torch for whatever tribe they they feel um effective in or or will get approval from and and that's unfortunate that that kind of mentality supersedes a genuine and honest look at the evidence. Mm. And so you're just going to get a lot of that with the carnivore crowd and the vegan crowd because whether they realize it or not, they're the they're very similar types of people in terms of their uh, cognitive approach and their biases. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure you have. Have you seen how Joe Rogan's now giving, you know, this month a go on the carnivore diet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw that, and and he reported uh, on um, really having to, to, you know, stop the floodgates from happening with <laughs> diarrhea, right? Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, Joe, Joe is he's just generally an entertaining guy. I, I really enjoyed that post, the way he described what was he was going through, and I thought it was super funny how this happened right on the heels of uh, him having a a carnivore proponent. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, a, a vegan proponent on his show who was debating with a paleo guy. And, uh, you know, right after the show, Joe is like, man, you know, the, the, the vegan guy really, really kind of won that that debate. I'm wondering if I should delete the previous uh, uh, podcast episode where, where the paleo guy, I had the paleo guy come and talk about it. And then right after he's on the, the, the carnivore diet, you know, just... <laughs> And, and I think he went on the carnivore diet because uh, of the backlash that happened as a result of the debate between, and I, I'm hoping I'm getting the names right, James Wilkes and uh, Chris Kresser. That's the one, yep. So J- James Wilkes being the, the vegan guy. And James Wilkes had a much better delivery. Uh, Joe can relate to him more. He's a he's a MMA mm. competitor, high-level uh, professional uh, ex um, MMA competitor, ex pro, uh, and and so it's just you know he 
he's he's more muscular he's more passionate he, he looks healthier than than chris <laughs> so it's very convincing um but the backlash of that and kind of the exposure of all these um, logical fallacies and how um his cognitive biases were uh able to be uh, effectively used and, and weaponized in the debate mm. uh joe was able to step back and see that and and then he just i guess he said ah screw it i guess i was right all along with this meat eating stuff i'm gonna go carnivore now for a month try it out but i i think it was uh he's doing it because there's something called apparently called world carnivore month i think we're in the midst of it i don't know who started it okay but uh but yeah it, it, joe is in the midst of world carnivore slash crap your pants month as far <laughs> as he's his experiences go so yeah man it's, it's wild it's uh, it's wild out there It'll be interesting, um, and I do hope it ha- happens soon because uh, I think he's now got Lane um, getting on, coming onto his podcast to now debate back with for, with uh, Wilkes, um, and I think Lane. Oh, for reals? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, I know I know Lane kind of called out to Joe and said, you know, I'd love to come on your show. I think I can deliver it better than Chris did, and I think uh, I could de-escalate some of the kind of weaponizing, as you said, that um, James uh, James Wilkes did use and use very effectively. Um, and even I walked away from that original podcast and go, I'm like, he convinced me of a vegan life. Like, and I'm, I'm not in any way, shape or form going to take up that life. But I mean, he did do a very convincing argument on that. Um, and I could see how many people go, you know, one up for the vegans. Yes, we're here. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm really, really looking forward to getting Lane and Wilkes on there because I think they'll have a better debate. And I think Lane will be able to kind of nullify those, you know, as said, those attacks that um, James Wilkes will no doubt bring again uh, to try and. Um, win his debate. If he can get Lane and Wilkes together on the show, which I, I'm pretty sure he can, I would watch that. You know, I, I the thing is, I couldn't watch Wilkes versus Cresser. It was too much of a headache just to see uh, Wilkes just steamroll the the, the conversation and um, Cresser just kind of get well ran over without any chance to get a word in edgewise. I think it would go differently with Lane. And um, obviously, uh, I think Lane is much better versed in, in matters of nutrition and, and research than um, than Chris. Um, so it, <laughs> I hope that happens, man. I, I will definitely watch that. I will definitely watch that. Absolutely. Well, um, just to kind of, I'd like to get your a couple of viewpoints on um, you know the vegan lifestyle and things like that in a second. But just to go back to, um, we were talking about insulin. Um, obviously, type two diabetes is becoming a you know, a, a much more prevalent disease um, around the world. A lot more people suffering from its, uh, you know, catastrophic um, issues that come along with it. Um, and mm-hmm. I deal with it a lot um, in practice, and it's something that I'm becoming um, much more kind of referred to by doctors in my local community, um, mm-hmm. which is great. And I'm I'm loving being able to help those people. Um, you know, not only reverse it, but um, see them get off a lot of medications and things like mm-hmm. that. A lot of the carb-hating fraternity as well will sit there and say, you know, the reason you've got type 2 diabetes is carbs and it's the insulin response and yada, 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 what we've already said. Um, I'd love to just get your two cents on, you know, what you've kind of seen in literature or kind of what you can add to that kind of debate and help people who might be listening to this who might have type 2 diabetes or be on the borderline, you know, pre, pre-diabetic, how they mm-hmm. can, what they can do with their diet whether they have to get rid of carbs, do they just have to be in a caloric deficit, what your kind of two cents would be on that topic? Per the weight of the research evidence, a it, it, it does help for people to be cognizant of the amount of carbo. It does help type 2 diabetics to control the amount of carbohydrate that they, they take in, the amount of total carbohydrate per day that, that they take in. However, it's not this full pendulum swing to, you know, the, the common full pendulum swing where type two diabetics have to go full keto. You know that that the evidence just doesn't reflect that. Uh, there is some evidence showing that keto does benefit type two diabetics, and why wouldn't it? However, um, there is a point of there, there's a point where it, it's unnecessary to further cut carbs. You know, there, there's a threshold there. And for adherence purposes and for maximizing the spectrum of uh, nutrients that you take in, whether these nutrients be essential for life or whether they be 
uh, helpful for preventing chronic disease um, or optimizing health. Uh, it can, it, it, I see it as being most practical to find out what is the greatest amount of carbs that you can allot and still control the uh, ravages of type 2 diabetes. And so when you look at the majority of the systematic reviews and meta-analyses on, on this topic, there seems to be a threshold of about 130 grams of carbs a day or less. And we're talking about at the general level, you know, average, um, you know, uh, population level, the population mean here, um, 130 grams or less seems to be the kind of the magic threshold where, where type two diabetics want to pay attention. Um, there are other people who would argue with me and say, nope, they got to go full keto. And I would say, well, let's, let's just take a look at the literature and, and see what's what with that. Um, I am not against the idea of, uh, type two diabetics trying keto and, and, and seeing if they can sustain it. Um, however, there's a lot more options available to folks who can consume or are in quotes allowed to consume hundred ish grams of carbs a day, 130 grams of carbs a day and be able to sustain that diet as a type two diabetic. So, um, there's kind of a two, two, two part answer here. So there's the answer of individually just sort of looking at carb intake in isolation, uh, which I just talked about. And then there's kind of the bigger picture, which would be to push body composition towards lean, push body composition towards, uh, uh, something that would reflect um, more of like an in quotes ideal body weight. So if you were to take any type 2 diabetic that is overweight or obese, it almost doesn't matter what you do. Whatever it takes to get them to a normal healthy body weight and body composition will improve their conditions related to type 2 diabetes, will improve their cardiometabolic parameters. And of course, including their glucose control. So when, when you first focus on the overarching goal, improve body composition, that is going to, or, or rather, okay, overarching goal, reduce body fat. There are many, many ways to skin that cat. So, um, and, and then underneath that umbrella, then you would look at, okay, well, don't go hog wild on the carbohydrate intake um, just, to, just as a precaution. So that's a really kind of simplistic way of looking at treating type 2 diabetes. And there's other wrinkles to throw in there um, with diabetics and the constellation of, uh, of, of, of metabolic dysregulation that they have. It's not going to help this group to be eating a lot of, of foods that are highly refined, highly processed, and, and hyperpalatable. Um, it's just not going to help them from, from the standpoint of controlling body fat levels as well as appetite, um, as well as controlling total carbohydrate intake. So um, I would uh, always default to a diet that's predominated by whole foods, minimally refined foods, uh, mi a minimal amount of these ultra-processed type of junk foods. I, I would never say avoid um, and zero intake of, of any kind of like packaged dessert in your life, um, we have to keep things sustainable and there is room for that sort of thing in small margins. But I would say, number one, focus on getting lean. Focus on getting lean and muscular, why not? And uh, for those type two diabetics, uh, per some respect towards the literature, we're looking at sort of this threshold of uh, try not to cross much over 130 ish grams of carbohydrate a day. But then again, I, it, I, I hesitate to issue any hard and fast recommendations in that vein because it's entirely possible for a type 2 diabetic who's physically active enough to maintain a lean and muscular body composition and still be eating 200 grams of carbs a day. And maybe those 200 grams of carbs a day consist of fruits and vegetables and tubers and legumes, yep. <laughs> you know, and, and some whole grains. Um, yeah, another rabbit hole with the, the term whole grains as well. You, you, you can find a whole lot of crappy whole grain products. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's a rabbit hole all on its own, man. 
the, the whole uh, insulin thing and, and how insulin impacts or, or insulin resistance or sensitivity status impacts type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. To your point, to your point on physicality, and um, you, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned that if someone was highly active, um, that they could mm-hmm. potentially have more carbohydrates. Um, have you found, or is there any literature around, you know, when we kind of um, keep everything else equal, is there benefits to doing a certain type of physical activity to help um, these people, um, you know, obviously reduce their um, blood sugar levels, increase their insulin sensitivity again, and get it, um, you know, not being so insulin resistant? Are there, you know, like uh, strength training or running or swimming or like is there any evidence or any research out there that suggests that one's better than the other that's a really damn good question man uh the the literature as a whole shows that uh, for one reason or another and my and my suspicion is that when you're um when you're dealing with the majority of of of, of subjects in these studies who are general population and you're not going to be necessarily seeing athletic or, or, or much less bodybuilding type of uh, resistance training going on. Um, people in the general population would have a tendency to uh, improve their glucose control with, with physical activities that are less kind of foreign to them. Uh, and that would be just taking cardio to escalating levels of frequency, duration, intensity. Um, so I wouldn't say the literature at this point would show uh, any particular type of exercise as being um, superior for improving glucose control because um, it, it, if, if I were to kind of take the, the data and put it to practice, if there was a um, – I always try to frame things this way. If you were in a contest to help a given client, let's say you – versus your competitor, you and your client versus your competitor in this co- competition and his client. And let's imagine this client was cloned, okay, and you have to improve their whatever it is, their body composition or their, their glucose control or whatever in, let's say, a, a, a six-month period. And at the end of six months, um, whoever wins gets, I don't know, a million bucks, something that, you know, something that would be worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> so... I would have them do a combination of resistance training and uh, cardiorespiratory type training in order to uh, maximally uh, improve glucose control. But, and here comes the big but, if I were to only, if we, if we could only choose one, that, that one type of exercise that, that uh, somebody can do to improve any, any, really any cardiometabolic parameter, um, it would be resistance training because that affects much more systems in potentially a more profound way than just having somebody uh, get on a treadmill a few times a week. Mm. So um, yeah, that's what I would say. And there's ways that you can make resistance training improve cardiorespiratory fitness to a degree that you are maximizing whatever health span um, variables you want to maximize. You know, you obviously aren't going to make somebody a successful triathlete or marathon runner just by resistance training, but you sure as hell can improve um, cardiometabolic parameters uh, that relate to health with resistance training. And um, just to kind of clarify that, because I think I speak the term strength training all the time as well, but I still think a lot of people hear that term and just go, Ah, it means I've got to get into a gym and I, I don't want to be around the gorillas and the people that just are screaming and ranting and raving and I'm going to turn into a, a muscle-building, muscle-head if I go there as well. That fear around that. Can people, as I said, starting out, can people just start doing sit-to-stands on a couch at home? Do they have to be in a gym? Like, What would you kind of classify to the Susie sitting who's never done exercise <laughs> in her life? What would you kind of classify to her and say, this is what would be efficient to get you going again and what I would say is strength training. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it, man. Uh, um, When you think of the body in terms of of basic movements that that are conducive to applying external load, um, then the whole options for programming kind of change, you know. Uh, Gosh, you know, push-pull, freaking squat twist, you know, there's only – 
there, there's a limited set of movements really that that we can, and of course there's ex, extension and flexion of of the of the limbs if you want to go. You know, if you if you want to get some beach muscles, get, you want to look good at, at the beach, you can concentrate more on, on those kind of things. That's great. Um, I I would say that you kind of find out what appeals to the client, and and if as a practitioner, as a trainer, everybody's going to have their biases and and what they may what they facilitate as being an an engaging um, mode of training. You know, everybody's going to have their biases towards that. And if they do a good job of sweeping the client up in the interest of doing that, whether it's something crossfit or whether it's something bodybuilding-y or whether it's something more calisthenics-like or even whether we kind of go further along the spectrum to powerlifting-ish, uh, whatever mode they choose, it, it should fit their goals and um, the program should be adapted to their preferences and their tolerances. Um, I, I just think that, that there's a lot of options to present to people to engage in resistance training, you know, just re resistant joint movements. And, yeah. and that can be done with body weight all the way to just, you know, the, the typical big three type of training. So hopefully that answer wasn't just too general and convoluted. No, um, it absolutely makes sense. And it's kind of like, it's a message I always give as well on that. To Susie, and I always love using her name, but um, Susie sitting on the couch at home, the thought of stepping into a gym might be terrifying for her right mm -hmm. now. But as you mm -hmm. said, just start with something that you are feeling more comfortable with. Maybe it's just she's going to stand up 10 times every time an ad comes on the TV. You're going to stand up and sit back down. And then six months from now, you might have progressed to a point where, you know what, actually the thought of going to the gym isn't so terrifying. So maybe go give it a go then. So as you said, it's going to be different to different people at different times, um, but it all will all be a benefit too if you just get yourself moving again. Yes, and when you combine that resistance training with a proper diet that's designed to cause the targeted changes in body composition, then that works great for everybody, in, including type 2 diabetics, yeah. especially type 2 diabetics. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, yes, and we, we've seen it time and time and time and time again. Um, just to kind of, I guess, then wrap up this kind of part of the chat in that mm. people obviously are going to still flick on Instagram. They're still going to go through Facebook. They're still going to be, you know, reading the articles that they see on news.com on the internet or, you know, Susie from accounting at work is going to say, I'm on this new fad detox or whatever it might be. Where should people who are laymen and sitting at home and, you know, just generally want to know more about how can they help their health, where should they look? And where shouldn't they be looking to kind of get a more you know, balanced and kind of educated uh, understanding of what they should do? Oh, that's an insanely difficult question, bro. <laughs> oh, God, that is super, super difficult. Uh, because it requires me naming off my own stuff and how to find me. <laughs> <laughs> and then it requires me naming off all of my... Uh, friends and colleagues in the industry who are within the evidence-based or science-based community. Uh, and we're just not out there in, in, in Hollywood. You know what I mean? We're just not out there in the, the major networks. So that's hard, man. That, that's a tough question of, of where to tell the lay public to go for the right information. I would point them towards you amongst myself and my colleagues. So, I know, tough question, Adam. <laughs> I don't really know how to answer that. <laughs> well, um, I, I, I'm hoping I can answer it in a, in a certain way um, in that people may or may not know um, of your monthly review that you put out and um, you know, the incredible knowledge that uh, you and time that you put into that. Um, and I want to offer up, um, you know, anyone who's listening to this now, um, this is obviously a self way of kind of getting me to have people <laughs> post our podcast on their Instagram page, but I want it to be rewarding for you as well, is that I want to give away a year to your Alan Aragon review to a listener listening in, and I will pay for that. I don't want you to give that for free, and I want to kind of give this to the people listening in, um, and I'll work that out with you if that's okay um, with you, but I would say... It was a leading kind of question as a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, but like lawyers always should know the answer to the question there in that I wanted to kind of lead it in because I think people should go and um, subscribe to your, your review that you get because I think it you know, gives information that is 
highly educated and it comes from a source that you know I think should be very reputable. Um, and you can you can read your review whether you are you know a science PhD you know graduate or you're someone just sitting at home. And so it's a push to go and have everyone go and you know sign up to your review. It is insanely cheap. I don't know how you do it for so cheap and why you do it because I think you can give it away for so much more. But um, I highly and I'll put the show notes to go to your website so people if they do are keen on that. But if you would be okay with me giving a year free to um, your review, um, I'd love to give that to the listeners in. And all I'm suggesting is screenshot our podcast today on your iPhone. Make sure you tag Alan and myself in that. Um, and then I will pick a winner. I'll get Alan to pick a winner um, from that, and we'll give a year to them for free if that's okay by you. That's fantastic, man. And it means so very much to hear those complimentary words from somebody of your status and stature in the industry. It truly does, Adam. Thank you so much. Not at all. No, as I said, um, I've I've enjoyed um, listening to your stuff, and it's certainly um, – there's been many things that I used to say about fasting that because of you, um, I've certainly um, turned my head to kind of look at the research in a much um, you know, clearer way and kind of really try and understand what I'm saying because the words I'm saying can certainly impact both positively and negatively on people's health and I should be trying to educate myself as best as I can to help people out there. And so um, I'd like to thank you um, for kind of doing what you do because it certainly helped me become a better practitioner. And in turn, I hope that we're helping more people kind of live happier and healthier lives. Absolutely, man. Um, and I'm going to work on my accent. After this <laughs> podcast, I'm realizing I'm coming up way short in that cool accent that you've got. So <laughs> I'm going to work on it. That's, um, it's, uh, I, I always wonder when I hear people say that, you know, we love the Australian accent. To me, I think we sound nasally and whiny and I can't understand how people <laughs> like hearing us. And when I hear our accent overseas when I'm traveling, I'm like, I'm running the other way. I'm like, oh, I don't want to hear that at all. <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. <laughs> um, I, again, I thank you for your time. And if you don't mind, I always ask um, guests at the end of our, um, my, our podcast to uh, answer a quick fire five, just quick fire uh, answers, if you don't mind kind of uh, going and uh, entertaining me on that. Would love to. Excellent. Um, so the quick fire five. Um, number one, beach or snow? Beach. Um, if you could travel somewhere and see an event, would you go to the future and pa- or past and what would that be? Oh, what an <laughs> awesome question. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, man. Mm. Okay, you got me stumped. Um, I would want to see... Uh, boy... Okay, that I'll go back to that. I'll okay, go back. What, yep. what are the next ones? Cool. Um, don't have to worry about nutritional value or calories or anything like that. If you had to have one food for the rest of your life and it gave you everything you needed in life, what would be that one meal that you'd have every day? Any kind of pasta dish my wife makes, I, I could eat that every day, I think. Yeah, I, I get um, a bit drooly when I see some of the things that you post up there that uh, your lovely wife does cook because she looks like a phenomenal cook. So, um, yeah, I could uh, understand why you'd answer that. <laughs> She's amazing. It's it's so tough to pick. I, I Actually, any dish she makes really, but but yeah, pasta just came to mind for a second. Maybe it's because I'm like slipping into ketosis or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, we've been on this podcast, you know, for almost an hour. So, you know, those, those carbohydrate <laughs> levels are dropping. You just need another big hit, yeah? <laughs> yes. Um, number four, family, friend, famous, dead or alive, who would you like to have with dinner for tonight? Family or friend, dead or alive. Uh, well, you know what? Uh, if I were to be perfectly 100% honest, it would be my wife. Perfect answer. 100%, man. Yep. 100%. Um, everyone obviously always answers that they would spend uh, the last moments on this earth if you were told tomorrow that you weren't going to be here anymore with their family and kind of doing that. You've done that. You're now going to be completely selfish and you've got 24 hours left on this planet. What do you do for that last 24 hours? God, I am so boring. Adam, you're finding out how freaking boring I am. Uh, it would be hanging out with my wife and my two boys. No, perfect answer, mate. <laughs> maybe, maybe near the beach, eating something. Perfect. Um, can we go back to number two? Have you got a, an answer to uh, number two? Re-ask that question, please. Um, if you could see one event in the future or in the past, which event? Well, where would you go, and which event uh, would that be? Um. Good. 
God, man. Uh, I, 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 I'm either thinking of, of musical concerts or, or historical figures. And, uh, I think I'm going to go with historical figures. I, I I'd love to sit down and, and have a talk with, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> it's, it's it's interesting you brought that one up because um, someone else has answered that before as well, and they say I'd like to go back two thousand and twenty years to see the birth of Christ because I think so many of our issues today are, are revolving around that particular event, and I'd like to be there to kind of have a first hand event of kind of what went on. So um, yeah, I want to I want to <laughs> talk to the man at, at his peak though. I'd rather talk to him when he's thirty, you know, okay, yep. right than when he's born, and kind of let him know what happened to me in the future and. You know what I what I can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, great great question, man. Tough question. Excellent. Well, um, thank you so much again for your time. And um, as I said, I really do appreciate that. And um, once we get off this podcast, as I said, I'll try and see how we can set up to again, guys. Post this podcast tag Alan and myself in that um, particular screenshot on your Instagram. And as I said, I want to give a year away to uh, your particular review and everyone else. Go out there, go to his website. The show notes will have his details. You must go and join this review because, um, as I said, it's been transformational for me um, and I certainly believe it could be for uh, any of you listening in. So, um, Alan, again, thank you so much for your time and I appreciate you jumping on today. Thanks right back, Adam. You are an asset to the industry and thanks for the guest spot here. That means a lot to hear from uh, you, Matt. So, um, again, guys, thank you so much for joining in on the podcast. That's been another episode this week. I'll see you again. Ciao.